0: Stuck inside in the mountains, quarantine cars. The light of the end of the tunnel
1: isn't inside.
0: Welcome to Next Quest Podcast, where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah S. Garcia, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor. Today, I welcome to the show Lindsay Tubbs, Licensed Professional Counselor, who will be discussing her specialty: utilization management, health insurance, and advocacy. Welcome to the show, Lindsay.
1: Thanks.
0: Good to have you. I, I really enjoy this topic, as you know um, insurance is a mutual interest.
1: Yeah. How to sell your soul. <laughs>
0: 101.
1: 101. Yeah.
0: So, uh, tell us, what are your credentials and experience?
1: Um, well, I have a LPC here in Texas, licensed professional counselor. My master's is in counseling from Sam Houston, eat em up cats. Um, prior to grad school, I worked at child protective services, which is kind of where I decided I wanted to be a counselor. Um, After graduation, I did substance abuse work at a local residential treatment center for adolescents and IOP uh, with adults and adolescents. And then I switched into community mental health. And from there I went to the insurance game.
0: So is being a therapist your first career? If not, what was?
1: No, like I said, I worked at Child Protective Services and loved that job. Um, loved working with the families and the kiddos that I got to interact with. But in doing that, I kind of learned the difference in being a social worker, being a therapist, and sort of decided on the place that I would fit best. And from there, I decided to go to graduate school and get my master's in counseling because I wanted to work I started out wanting to work with families in the foster care system and and working with foster care parents. um, Well, not foster care parents, but foster parents because that was a need that I saw wasn't being addressed. There wasn't a lot of family therapy for foster parents and the kiddos in their home and kind of helping kiddos adjust to that new environment and this new life. Um, And that's where I did a lot of my practicum work when it was getting close to graduation And then when I graduated, I realized that I was going to have to create that job if that's the one I wanted because there wasn't a place for me to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's when I got into community health care, community mental health care, and started working with adolescents in the juvenile justice system and those mental health issues. And then later adults who had just been uh, released from prison and also had acute psychiatric issues and co-occurring substance use issues so
0: that's quite the population
1: <laughs> yes
0: it's a very needed needed service to, to that population there's not a whole lot of people out there a whole lot of resources out there
1: no and it's it's not easy it's hard
0: yeah so what brought you to utilization management
1: well I was working in community mental health and I had a child um, and it became very clear to me that th- at the end of the day i had no energy left for myself and to give my new baby i had spent all of my energy during the day with my clients who were really high need really high crisis and i had a friend tell me about this job that they loved and it really offered them opportunity to leave work at work and come home and spend time with their family it didn't hurt that the money was way better and so I took that opportunity and ran with it.
0: I don't blame you. So you know just to let our viewers our viewers our listeners know what is utilization management?
1: So utilization management is what insurance companies call authorization reviews. You a a customer we call customers you guys have them as patients or clients. Um, They come into a service for medical care or behavioral health care i'm on the behavioral health side obviously and they come in for a service maybe it's inpatient psychiatric care maybe it's php maybe it's iop or outpatient therapy and someone has to submit paperwork to the insurance company to get paid for that service and utilization management is the person you talk to who determines if that level of care is most appropriate and reviews with the provider on a fairly regular basis to ensure that that level of care is, A, what's appropriate, and B, necessary, can, has continued necessity.
0: And utilization managers are all licensed professionals, correct?
1: As far as I know, they're usually, uh, they could be LCSWs, uh, they could be LPCs, licensed marriage and family therapists. Different states call them different things. but. Mm. Every utilization manager that I've worked with on the insurance side is a licensed clinician.
0: Nurses, too.
1: Yeah, on the medical side.
0: I've had behavioral health uh, reviews with
1: nurses. Oh, uh, well I, I, at least the two the two health plans that I've been at, the nurses were on the medical side. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's not uh, possible. I've just not. At least that I know about.
0: Yeah, she was awful.
1: <laughs> well, in a, an RN, a psychiatric nurse probably wouldn't be so bad might be uh, really useful but Mm
0: -hmm. what do you enjoy about utilization management
1: well i not only do i get to talk to people all over the country and kind of see the trends of behavioral health throughout the united states not just specific to texas um, I get to be included in treatment planning at various levels of care. I also, just on a personal note, I get to be done with work. When work is over at 5 p.m., I get to turn off my computer and go live my life. The, the stress reduction is amazing
0: mm-hmm.
1: and really worth it.
0: Yeah, I can see that. <clears throat> so tell us a little bit about yourself, like hobbies, interests, TV shows, music, etc.
1: Um, Well, I am a single mother. I have a four-year-old, so he's probably my biggest interest. Um, When he's not with me or when I have any free time, I like to sleep and (laughs) lean and actively do nothing. That's a big one. I I try and do nothing as much as possible. Um, If I have to do something, I like to read recipes. I like to cook. Uh, I'm really interested in skincare. (laughs) I like to... uh, That sounds really silly, but I like to go look at new products and try them out, make my own sometimes. Oh, cool. Um, I watch any television show that's going to be so unrealistic that it both entertains and it breaks up the monotony of my life. But that started originally with so unrealistic that it was nothing compared to the kind of crisis work that I was doing in my real life, so I could sort of blank out and unfazed by it but
0: what's an example of a show like
1: that like law and order svu ah okay uh, which okay. was a big one especially when i worked at cps because i could watch it and be like that's not really how that works
0: i know and it's so formulaic that show like you i know. love it <laughs> i love
1: it and uh, quantico just finished binging quantico there were only three nice. seasons it's still a great show really makes me think how many government conspiracies there are
0: Oh, I know. Don't even get me started. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: but I also, when I was younger, I really liked to watch The Bad Girls Club. <laughs> so yep. sometimes I will still kind of relive the old days and watch old episodes. That's funny. Yeah, big fan of RuPaul's Drag Race. Very good show.
0: They just had a, uh, I think, the first trans man on the show, didn't they?
1: Uh, they do, yeah. I mean, it's still in its season. I'm a couple episodes Behind, So I don't know kind of who's in the lead or what's going on. But the last episode I watched, he was still there, which is a really interesting dynamic to have a trans man as a drag queen. Probably not as, you know, I'm sure that happens more frequently. Oh, but, very frequently. But it is, it's really cool. Um, I just love that show. I think it's about I time. I want to be a drag queen one day.
0: <laughs> there are cis women who mm-hmm. are drag queens. Like mm-hmm. it is, it's a thing um you should look into it
1: <laughs> i don't know that my face would handle all that makeup but it just looks like so much fun
0: i agree i wouldn't mind doing drag at one point i think it'd be so much fun
1: yeah
0: it's... um so we have two different sides of the same coin right we have utilization management and then we have utilization review um right. for our listeners how would you define, define utilization review
1: so utilization review is what happens on the facility side. So, typically, that's what they call their insurance advocates, so to speak, as a utilization reviewer. Um, oftentimes, they're not licensed clinicians; they're just staff in that office, and that's their main focus. They talk primarily to insurance companies all day and try and get authorizations continued. They get clinician or they get clinical from doctors, nurses, therapists, um, caseworkers, social workers at the facility, whether it's inpatient or outpatient, and they deliver that information to the utilization manager on the insurance side. I guess it's probably really important to specify, I work on an inpatient team, Mm so outpatient, Consists typically of like IOP or just individual therapy, group therapy, family therapy. So the therapist, I think, is submitting paperwork is the one kind of advocating for continued authorization. Inpatient is your really acute levels of care. So mental health, psychiatric inpatient at a hospital, mental health residential, mental health partial, and then substance use, detox, residential, partial some places include IOP as their inpatient stuff, and some don't.
0: Right, and it's I think it's important to note that most often um, what requires authorization or pre-authorization mm. is inpatient, PHP, sometimes IOP, but not all the time. Correct, um, detox,
1: and, psychiatric, yeah. inpatient, residential. PHP can they really would like for you to get a pre auth first. But inpatient detox, those are kind acute. of considered acute care, yeah. and they can admit and then get authorization. Right. Same as an emergency room or a, you know. Inpatient things, I, like psychiatric inpatient detox, those things are all built inclusively, mm-hmm. in the, um, which is sometimes really tricky for... Reviewers and facilities—they want to know if they need to get separate pre-authorization for ECT therapy mm-hmm. or for a psychological assessment or something. But it's all billed inclusively with that inpatient authorization. So there aren't a lot of separate codes.
0: Yeah, and you know, which is as, nice
1: for me. Yeah, I don't have to <laughs> deal
0: with it. Do you get a lot of people doing uh, PHP with boarding?
1: yeah and most private insurances uh that becomes a cost sharing thing so we the insurance company typically does not cover boarding they'll pay for the php program and then the customer has to figure out boarding on their own um i think most operate that way and typically that's with substance use Mm -hmm. phps you don't see that a lot with mental health phps um, because they're typically tied to the hospital Or standalone psychiatric facility but um, it happens a lot and and it happens a lot with people that are at a residential facility they step down within the facility PHP because they're no longer meeting that criteria and then the customer has to come up with boarding on their own
0: and so you you use the term meeting criteria let's talk about that a little bit so how do insurance companies determine whether they are going to provide coverage regarding a particular level of care?
1: So it's a different for mental health and substance use. So substance use is the easiest to explain. So I'll start with that. Lots of insurance companies use the ASAM criteria. And I could tell you what ASAM stands for, but it's not in my brain right now. Uh, but you can Google it and look it up. Uh, many, and and throughout the country, they use AM, which is helpful because it is standard. Texas has its own medical necessity criteria identified by state health services um, that kind of helps a clinician or an insurance company determine what criteria is set out to approve initial authorization and then concurrent authorization, which is The initial authorization when they first get there, you're approved for so many days, and then anything after that is when they're actively engaged in programming, they're actively there, and you're reviewing concurrently to see if they continue to meet criteria. So Texas-based insurance companies, um, like Medicaid health plans, use Texas Administrative Code, I forget the number, um, to help them determine if someone initially meets or continues to meet that criteria. It's TAC. They just, everybody refers to it as TAC. Mm-hmm. Private insurance companies have have now gone to kind of a standardized ASAM criteria that outlines again what's needed to meet initial criteria and then what's needed for that continued stay review.
0: What is typically needed to meet initial criteria?
1: So for substance use, um, let's let's go level of care. Which level of care would you like to... <laughs>
0: Let's see. Um, I mean, let's do, let's do a little of, of, you know, let's do a little smorgasbord of...
1: So detox. So a detox level of care is different. If they're in a hospital and doing detox, it's a higher level of care requires very specific criteria. So for ACM in a detox level of care at a hospital, they must be getting... 24 hour their detox must require 24 hour supervision it's a medically monitored detox with a doctor 24 7 a nurse 24 7 and are they in like acute distress are they are they really in danger of acute withdrawal like from alcohol or benzos that could potentially kill them they're mm-hmm. being monitored for seizures and other activity if they're doing detox at a residential facility that has a detox unit it's a lower level of care and requires a bit more information that's not so medical in nature. They still require that, you know, are they in danger of acute withdrawal? Are they, being, are they on a taper? Are they being monitored by nurses all the time, but maybe a doctor's only available as needed?
0: So that's when like somebody would do something like a CWA,
1: right? Yeah, hospitals do CWA assessments, residential facilities do CWA assessments, and those are actually really important and getting continued stay, getting authorized for continued stay. Detox is uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And that that's one of those arguments that I find I have with providers and URs is detox is uncomfortable. It doesn't necessarily mean that they need to be on a detox unit. Right. If, if their taper is ending, people take medications in residential facilities all the time. Detox is uncomfortable for a while. If they're no longer in danger of acute withdrawal, and no longer in danger of experiencing seizures or really dangerous withdrawal symptoms, they could be stepped down to a residential level of care, mm-hmm. and really start working on programming. Because in detox, you're not getting programming. You can't. <laughs> no, you're just. You, know, you feel like in a crap. bed. Yeah. Getting your vitals run all the time.
0: So basically, what I'm hearing and what I know is that initial. Criteria is based on like symptoms. What symptoms are present. Yes so Obviously if somebody has been using alcohol drinking a liter of vodka for 10 years every day Mm -hmm. um, You know, they're gonna be at a risk of um, You know Vital seizures
1: really intense DTs Um, and so they would be on a detox unit, whether in a hospital or at a residential facility that, has, that offers detox as a service. Um, and they may need a five to seven day detox depending on what taper they're on, um, but it's gonna take them a while to no longer experience symptoms. Um, and, and really that, that use history is going to be very important to getting both initial and continued stay approved mm-hmm. so you really have to determine as a clinician is your is your client reliable mm-hmm. um or not right
0: and i mean you, you got to ask the questions like how often how much mm-hmm. since when you know
1: and any co-occurring medical conditions right. because typically people really deep in using are not managing those medical issues and so like diabetes diabetes one fatty liver disease, mm-hmm. cirrhosis, hep C is really common. Mm-hmm. Um, high blood pressure in someone that's unmanaged but also has a substance use disorder can be very dangerous. Mm-hmm. And so detox offers an opportunity to at least get that started, get those medications restarted.
0: So let's say... I'm going to throw you out. You're going to love this example. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Somebody is seeking inpatient care now they want to go inpatient because their meds aren't working right and um they want to get a medication change Mm -hmm. i'm sure you hear about that often
1: Mm
0: -hmm. what what happens when somebody presents at a hospital for those concerns
1: so, if they present to a hospital, that hospital is going to determine if they are in acute risk of hurting themselves or others. A medication review, in and of itself, is not enough to admit someone to a hospital. The hospital may believe it's enough, it's not going to be enough for the insurance company to approve that stay. And there's a whole peer review process, and doctors have to talk, and it's a thing. On the insurance side, we would get that clinical and say they're not at risk of hurting themselves or others. There's no history of these behavior. You know, it all depends on the clinical that's pre- presented, right? But if it's really just a medication review, they're likely going to be told either PHP if that, <laughs> not even PHP if they have an outpatient provider that's been providing them medications, they need to go see that person. Yeah. Insurance companies understand if they're seeing an outpatient psychiatrist, maybe they've tried and they can't get an appointment for two weeks. And so, if they feel like, okay, I have a history of these behaviors and I have a history of self injury and a history of suicide ideation, right? They feel like that decompensation is starting, then PHP may be appropriate because they can immediately get a medication review with a psychiatrist and get some new meds started. But if that risk does not exist, they just feel like their antidepressant is a little low and they'd like a higher dose, they're likely going to be referred back to their outpatient psychiatrist or assisted in finding a new one who mm-hmm. can see them more quickly.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, either that or Cause
1: some- Because IOPs don't manage meds,
0: so- No, they don't. Some do, but some don't. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't think they're reimbursed for that at that level. Of they're care not.
1: Um, so if they're an IOP associated with a hospital, they would likely bill as an outpatient psychiatric visit, mm-hmm. separate from the intensive outpatient authorization.
0: Now, one one situation that I think would make a difference on whether somebody would be authorized for care or not, depending on, like, say, their medications haven't been working, um, they are decomping not not a risk of harm to self or others but they have um significant medical issues um, that could be impacted by a change of meds outpatient
1: right and hospitals can admit someone on a on an observation Mm -hmm. level a 24-hour observation so that they can really take a look and see if this person needs continued stay at this structure the the thing about inpatient What we're really looking at is do they require that level of observation? Do they require nursing 24 hours a day? Do they require a doctor available 24 hours a day? Um, And that's one thing that I know recently I had a facility say, I asked for a doctor's note. What's the most recent doctor's note? And the doctor had not seen that our customer, their patient, for 48 hours or more. And I said, I just want to be clear you guys are a hospital you're an inpatient psychiatric facility it is our expectation based on your contract with our company that you your doctor the attending physician or on the weekend the hospitalist um, sees this person every 24 hours and they gave me a lot of well our policy states da 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 I was like Right, but you have a contract right, with us right. that requires, as an in-network provider, that requires this service. So we're not going to review until you give me a doctor's note or you know, we do something else. But do they require a visit from a doctor 24 hours a day? Do they require nursing? And like... A mental status exam every two hours, mm-hmm. a, a nursing visit, a vitals check every mm-hmm. four hours. I mean, that's what we're really talking about when we're looking at inpatient care, whether it's psychiatric or even a medical facility. If their symptoms don't require that level of observation, then inpatient psychiatric is not appropriate at all. And with private insurance, the customer still has a portion of that to pay. Right. It, so just because we approve it doesn't mean that it's covered 100%. Right. People forget that. I think lots of times facilities forget what that will mean for the patient when they discharge. Yes, you got approval from the insurance company.
0: Right. But now they, they have to pay for 10 days of five hundred dollars a day yeah you know. they
1: have a deductible they have mm-hmm. co-insurance that they're required to pay and so if this wasn't necessary for them you've now billed them for something that could have been treated could have been managed at a less expensive and lower level of care
0: and potentially causing you know compounding issues to that psychological condition you know now there's financial stress
1: yeah you know. i mean psychiatric and they haven't been working are, theme parks <laughs> I mean they're not fun it's not a break
0: some people some people think it, <laughs> is, but, it
1: is but not you know not everybody would they go to a psychiatric facility and be like this is not what I thought it was going to be most
0: people do that's my yeah. my experience most people don't quite understand what what the, uh, the scene is right. in an inpatient hospital right it's you know So you know that a lot of referrals to a higher level of care, whether that be inpatient, PHP or IOP, comes from private practitioners and private practice. Um, What mistaken beliefs do you think most practitioners have about higher levels of care?
1: What do I think outpatient providers have or?
0: Yeah, outpatient providers like uh, pra- uh, like a therapist in private practice who might refer somebody to inpatient.
1: I do think that oftentimes there is a misconception about what the length of stay looks like. And so I think outpatient providers at times will refer someone to an emergency room or a psychiatric facility to get assessed and hospitals are so necessary, they also are going to admit almost anyone who comes in to get assessed. And that's not always appropriate. Going for an, to an emergency room to be assessed because the outpatient therapist is concerned doesn't mean that someone is acute, doesn't mean that someone is going to hurt themselves or hurt someone else. But once they get to the hospital, those assessments look different and it could be determined that for their own safety, they need to stay there. And that's not actually true. Um, and I'll I'll give an example. So I was talking to a reviewer from another state, not in Texas, um, and the 17-year-old had relayed to her outpatient provider that she was feeling down was had often thought about suicide had no history of attempts fyi but had often thought you know my life would be better life for everyone would be better if i weren't here so the outpatient therapist told the mother she needed to take her to the emergency room to be assessed and if she didn't the therapist would call the police to take the kid to the emergency room so mom is immediately scared she doesn't want the police involved, takes her to the emergency room. In this particular state, that 17-year-old is legally allowed to voluntarily admit or discharge on her own. It's not up to the parent. They initially did like an emergency hold, which is sort of like an involuntary admission on this 17-year-old. She later signed herself involuntarily consistently told the facility staff she wasn't suicidal. She doesn't know why she's here. She was tearful. She was scared, as would I be if I were thrown into a psychiatric facility for talking to my therapist. And she called her mom, wanted to come home. Well, the facility then interpreted that and kind of relayed that information to the insurance company that she's minimizing, that she's guarded, that she's tearful, she's obviously depressed, needs to still be here and that even though at 17 she had changed her mind and signed a 72-hour discharge notice, the doctor would not accept it and put her on another emergency hold, which again is the same as an involuntary admission. It just caused a bunch of panic in that family that I'm not saying this kiddo didn't have some symptoms or some issues that she needed to work through, and she went to her therapist To talk about them and it spiraled into this very serious incident that has now potentially left her traumatized. Mm -hmm. Um, They didn't do anything to her medications. They didn't adjust them. So that's one reason that people go to a psychiatric facility when they're acute is to be immediately placed on some medications to help address the symptoms. She was going to group and participating fine. She just didn't want to be in a hospital.
0: It doesn't sound like she needed to be.
1: No, she absolutely didn't need to be.
0: So I, I guess where I get confused is why? Why does the provider have to? Why didn't the provider do their own assessment of the like plan, means, and intent? And you know, like, why do they have to refer to a hospital to do that assessment? Like,
1: you know, that's you know. a that's a really great question, and I wish that I could talk to that therapist <laughs> and say what what exactly. Was your role in this? How did you determine that she needed to go? And I'm not saying this therapist didn't. I think, you know, in talking to the facility and then later, because I have contact with the parents and talking to the parent, what that looked like was this 17-year-old saying, I sometimes have these feelings. They've been happening more frequently. And the therapist said, well, something along the lines of, if you were gonna, how would you? And the kid said, I don't know. There's lots of different ways. I guess the easiest might be XYZ.
0: I mean, that's asking somebody to like entertain. Right. <laughs> you know. You've
1: now given them, you've sort of implanted in them a plan. Yeah. And now they, they need to go to a hospital. And my. And it just became way more significant in this kiddo's life
0: than it needed to be -hmm. yeah I think a lot of uh therapists especially therapists who don't have experience working in crisis or community mental health in general um are just fearful when somebody expresses suicidal ideations and i mean don't get me wrong it's a scary thing
1: it absolutely should be taken seriously
0: right but you know i think there's something to be said about you know assessing appropriately for the appropriate level of care um absolutely and that's not something that i think that we're trained on like we're not taught about the levels of care in our like graduate programs correct
1: correct i in fact i didn't even know that this kind of job was A thing in grad school certainly I knew how to do a suicide assessment I knew what assessments existed and certainly then later working in community mental health you're using those types of assessments more frequently but unless you were doing that kind of work you're right as just a private practitioner if that's the only work you've done as a clinician or even worked in a substance use facility, Mm -hmm. you're not really doing suicide assessments. You hear someone say they're talking about or they're thinking about suicide and the hairs on the back of your neck go up and you run with it and... that's not necessarily the right thing to do.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think staying calm in those situations and making sure you have all the information before making uh, a plan of action or judgment is entirely necessary yes so what would you say you know according to insurance companies which you know is who covers it so that's who gets the say of what what it is um what are partial hospitalization programs typically for
1: on the insurance side partial hospitalizations are a really good step-down option when someone has been impatient and while maybe is no longer acute, still having some residual SI, maybe there's just no plan or intent, but they're still having ruminating thoughts. You've recently changed some medications that take a little longer to activate and need some additional monitoring because perhaps there are some rule out diagnoses or things that at an, that very acute level of care, you really had the time or opportunity to assess but you feel like this person, adult or kiddo, needs continued that that same structure. Maybe they have a history of really significant SI, maybe even attempts, but both parents work out of the home. And so leaving them alone, even if they safety planned, isn't the best idea. So PHP offers that same structure, but they get to go home at night They get to see a psychiatrist, sometimes the same psychiatrist they saw inpatient, and really monitor those medications to make sure they're both efficient and the side effects aren't unmanageable, and try out new medications. They might have more long-term symptoms like PTSD that stems beyond just SI or HI, but something that requires a little more treatment but at an acute psychiatric facility they're not it's not meant to treat PTSD maybe immediate symptoms that can be dangerous but it's not meant to provide long-term therapy but this person needs that structure and support someone who recently had some psychosis and is less symptomatic but still having some residual paranoia or delusions and meds are kicking in but not perfect Let's step them down to PHP and offer that support Got if they can function in a group. Right. Because PHP is group. And so they also have to be able to participate participate and function in a group setting.
0: Mm-hmm. And what about the difference between PHP and IOP?
1: So I can tell you for criteria basis, right, PHP is no less than nine hours a week and no more than like 24 hours a day. PHP is not supposed to include boarding, which is why there's that cost sharing Mm -hmm. part of it. Um, IOP is no more than usually, I think like 12 hours a week. Um, So it's not, if it is happening every day, it's really limited. Um, And.
0: Most of the IOPs I've done, I've worked at before were like, three days a week for three hours each day
1: yes yes and php is usually eight or nine a.m. to 4 p.m. Right. all day if they're an adolescent they also have school programming within that time so Ooh. they do like morning hours or school afternoon hours or group um, they're also seeing a psychiatrist where as we talked about earlier IOPs don't always offer med management um, they do both will offer family therapy, but PHP is going to be a little more intensive Intensive on that family therapy side. Um, and there's usually a nurse on staff, IOP is a lot less structure, I mean, it's setting you up to be home. And not everybody needs to go from an inpatient hospital to one of these step-down programs. Sometimes they stabilize enough to discharge back to their established outpatient providers.
0: And so what, what's the difference in criteria from PHP to IOP?
1: So the the acuity level is different. If someone is presenting at PHP with suicidal ideation with intent and a plan, they're not appropriate for PHP. They need to be admitted, inpatient, and stabilized. If someone is having really significant psychosis, more than just, some changes to medications need to be made they, they likely need to be referred to an inpatient facility if they've been off their meds for three months and experiencing positive and negative psychotic symptoms they need to be referred to an inpatient facility um, if you're talking about someone with a diagnosis like bipolar if they're actively in a manic episode not on medications they likely need to be referred to an inpatient facility if they are on medications and in a manic episode, they probably can be treated at a PHP level of care because they've got some support. They just need to have them sort of looked at.
0: Okay. So it's a, a matter of uh, symptom acuity, really. Yes. Now, talking about the actual reviews that occur between a utilization reviewer and a utilization manager. Um, what sorts of information are used in those insurance reviews? Like what what does the facility typically gather to relay to the insurance company?
1: So I can tell you what I ask for every time, which is what most people ask for. Despite the level of care, most recent doctor's note, if they're inpatient or detox, and by inpatient I mean a mental health psychiatric inpatient or a detox, that's going to be a doctor's note within the last 24 to 48 hours especially if it's a Monday it's probably gonna be Sunday's note <laughs> um, if I want the nursing notes the most recent nursing notes how are they functioning in the milieu not just what they're telling the doctor but what is their behavior look like on the floor with their peers and with the nurses they're around all the time because what happens oftentimes is patients present differently to doctors than they do to nurses um, they will oftentimes tell doctors they're feeling great, but the nurses observe something different. Um, in a PHP review, that's no different. Doctors note within the last week, right, within the last five days, because at a PHP, they're seen once a week. What do the therapists say, the, the people leading groups? How are they, again, presenting in the milieu with their peers, with the group practitioners, with the med techs, whoever? Um, If they're doing family therapy, what's that look like? Who's involved? What's the discharge plan? Always what's... Always what's the discharge plan? We can't wait until discharge to have a discharge plan.
0: Discharge planning starts day one.
1: And lots of people don't do that. They're like, well, we can't discharge plan until we have a family therapy session. At the facility, whether it's PHP, inpatient, detox, residential, whatever... Discharge planning starts day one, and you should be taking at least a tentative plan to the family therapy session. This is what we have in mind. What do you guys think? How do you feel about this plan? Mm -hmm. Um, I hear that so often. Well, we haven't had a family session yet, so we don't have a discharge plan. Well, that's problematic.
0: Well, I mean, and I think initial reviews are really, I mean, they should be thorough. but, Mm -hmm. But, you know, it gathers information like symptoms, who does a person live with, history of trauma. Lots
1: of Um, collateral and historic information helps at that admission review. For concurrent review, which is what I call it continued stay review is often what you hear on the facility side or with the practitioner, um, Is very different. I as a utilization manager can only consider the information within that review period. So The last 24 to 48 hours, 72 hours maybe, depending on what they were given at admission, or the last five days of PHP, I can only utilize that information to determine if they continue to meet my necessity. You can give me all the historical information you want. I can't use it. Mm -hmm. A doctor can, in a peer review, can consider that historical data if they've had three previous suicide attempts five years ago but I can only look at immediate symptoms, immediate, what their current presentation is. And I think that's often, that is often upsetting for the facility side, because they want, well, this kid, you know, has all this historical information. I get it, but we already, they were already approved based on that information. Mm -hmm. I can't use the same clinical twice.
0: And I think it's important to note that when, when you do these reviews for continued stay, you're often authorizing maybe one to three days at a time. Yeah. And reviews are happening like constantly.
1: Yeah, I will say on the private insurance side, I get a little more, a little more flexibility to use my clinical judgment with regard to length of stay, as opposed to, you know, maybe working on a, like at the Medicaid health plan or mm-hmm. something like that. However, Insurance companies are for-profit companies. Mm-hmm. Even if a, a customer has a deductible, they have co-insurance that they have to think about, but the insurance company is not going to spend a bunch of money. Psychiatric stays are expensive for everybody. And if those symptoms can be treated at a lower level of care, because they have community support, they have family support, they're no longer... Dangerous, then the insurance company is going to recommend that lower level of care. The goal is not to institutionalize someone, right?
0: And I think that it's it's our it's our ethical obligation to put somebody in the level of care that's most appropriate. You know, which I mean, yes. often isn't up to us as a clinician. Um, you know, a lot of times that's. Um, I mean, if you are doing an assessment, initial assessment in a hospital setting, then you do have the the ability to say, "Oh no, I think this person needs inpatient PHP, IOP, whatever." Right. Um, even though there is pressure in facilities on clinicians to admit to a program, period, mm-hmm. um, you know, even if the criteria isn't there. Um,
1: well, and I think it's important to to note that oftentimes the person doing the assessing is not the person doing the review and asking for time. And so if it is important to that clinician, that doctor, that therapist, that treatment team, that this person, adult or kid, stay or admit to a particular level of care, you can't expect the utilization reviewer to know that. Advocacy is key and if you want, if you feel it, deep in your soul that this person needs to be in this level of care because they are in danger, you can't just think it. You right. gotta write it down, you gotta justify it in your chart so that the person talking to the insurance company can advocate on your behalf. Mm-hmm. Because because they're not clinicians, there isn't a clinical judgment factor. They don't just know that you feel that way. And quite frankly, if it's not in the chart, it didn't happen because at any time an insurance company can audit your charts Mm -hmm. and if it's not written down in the chart you just think they're minimizing or you think they're malingering or whatever you think they have a diagnosis that you're trying to rule out but you've not documented it i can't i can't do anything and that's why
0: facilities emphasize like documentation Mm -hmm. and having good documentation when you're doing a group in on a unit or if you have a one-on-one with somebody um you know that documentation is so important in the person's overall length of stay and i think a lot of clinicians don't realize the importance of their documentation and the role that it plays Mm -hmm. in somebody's treatment
1: yes and i I do think there is some onus on the facilities to provide adequate training absolutely even if it means asking someone from an insurance company to come and train them we get it i mean i know i was a clinician i have a template right we use dap or or Start or whatever yeah but it doesn't matter what your template is if the content is not there clinicians we tend to as clinicians typically because we're overworked especially if you work in something like community mental health, and I'm not saying everybody, there's always exceptions to the rule, but you get in the habit of kind of copying, pasting a template and then changing out the information to meet your current appointment, right? That's not a bad thing. You do what you got to do in the amount of time. You usually have like 10 minutes to document before your next appointment. But that means that sometimes really vital information gets replaced with sort of vague broad terms and generalizations just because you're thinking about it just how can I remind myself as a clinician that this is what we talked about and this is what we're working on but from the insurance side that vague broad information is not helpful in approving continued stay or admission you have to be very specific right if you're claiming that they're minimizing how do you know that How is their presentation supporting your belief that they're minimizing their symptoms? And if you can't give me that, then I just have to think maybe they're not minimizing. Maybe Mm -hmm. they really don't feel this way anymore.
0: And, you know, the utilization reviewer, there's only so much that they can do, speaking from experience. Mm -hmm. There's only so much that they can do with a... um, with a note that doesn't have a lot of information in it and you know like you said i i think that
1: they're
0: messengers yeah yeah i mean well and creating a rationale for continued mm -hmm. stay um you know and i think that that's what we need to look at as practitioners that's how we need to look at our documentation is a continued rationale for the reason why that particular level of care is required and like what Supports that. So, like, right. what symptoms
1: are there? Why know, is this the least restrictive level of care for them?
0: Yes, that's what I was looking for earlier. Least restrictive level yeah. of care. That's our ethical duty. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but because you are typically are not clinicians, they don't know. And sometimes they know they're clinicians and they understand how they're documenting things, so they know what keywords mean and they kind of will fill in the blanks. But again, if that chart gets audited and it's not in the chart that could be problematic for your facility. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it, it just can be problematic. And it happens the same. I, I know I talked to someone just the other day and they're not a clinician, there you are, but they work with clinicians, they work very closely with the doctors. And she just kept saying, well, he thinks da-da-da-da, and he thinks da-da-da, and I finally said, listen, I'm going to approve the time because there's you made two different medication changes over the past couple of days. But on Monday, I need you to give me the doctor's note. I don't want to know what you think he said. I don't want to know what you think is in the note. I don't want an overview. I need specific information from your doctor and your nursing staff about why this kid needs to still be here. Because all I'm hearing is you basing this information on why he admitted, what his history is, and I can't use that.
0: And so, through our documentation, that is one way that we are able to advocate with health mm-hmm. insurance companies for our clients. Yes. Um,
1: we're not the enemy. We want people to be safe and healthy, and doing well and thriving.
0: Yeah.
1: But you know, we can't make up things if they if if inpatient is the least restrictive, then that's where they need to be. But I. I
0: gotta have a reason why. Right. Right. I mean it's kinda like uh, it's kinda like I always used to compare it to like going to court. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, as a like prosecutor, you have to have a rationale mm-hmm. as have to, to have why. Evidence. Right. You have to have evidence. And that's what you're doing at these reviews is the reviewer is presenting evidence to you and you're determining whether that evidence is substantial enough to provide coverage.
1: Right, and well, and when I worked at CPS and I went to court and said, this is why this kiddo, these kiddos could go home or why they need to stay in foster care. It's not just because I think that's what it is. I just have a feeling in my gut they need to be here. <laughs> this is why, this is what the parents have done or haven't done, this is this is why that is not the safest place for them. Mm-hmm. So.
0: What about as a client? How can a a client advocate for themselves in terms of insurance companies?
1: Um, You know, that's difficult because the actual client may not be available. You know, they can't really advocate for themselves until after they've discharged, or Mm. especially if it's an acute level of care or residential. They can call their insurance company anytime with their therapist. But um, I think it's really important, especially as a parent, if you have a kiddo that's involved in care um, or in treatment, you reach out, you find out who the case manager is. If one is, if the insurance company will call you and say you or your child has qualified for case management and coaching services, does that interest you? Sure, I mean, if it's available, you don't have to pay extra, and it's another person checking on you or your child
0: And helping link you to services. Right.
1: Helping make sure that you have up-to-date information on providers in your area that are in-network. Services that could be beneficial. Most, at least for private insurance customers, they have employee assistance programs that are linked to the insurance. Find out. Your insurance company should be making that information available to you, but you might have to call to get it. Find out who that is. Find out what those services look like. Because that could be between one and you know, however many free therapy sessions to you. Yeah. And, but you, you got to reach out. You have to make that first call.
0: And so can, <clears throat> excuse me, is a client able to call their insurance company and say, hey, you know, I'm going through a lot. Is there any way I could be linked with a case manager?
1: Absolutely. And lots of insurance companies have crisis counselors. They can say, I'm, I'm feeling this way. And they will transfer them to that counselor on the phone who will assess them and find out if they're in danger, if they need immediate, you know, and then here's the local hospital, can I call you a ride? How can I help you get there? Um, or they'll connect them to their EAP who has those same council crisis sort of intervention specialists that can help them figure out the immediate need, If it's if the immediate need is like emergency care, or let me set you up with somebody help you get an appointment or help you find someone in your area that is taking new patients and you can call them and get an appointment over the next few days Um, yeah i mean there are services available as is with all mental health mental health services exist and are available it's one do you know that they exist and two do you know how to access them
0: Mm -hmm. what about say somebody presents at a inpatient facility for assessment and um say they're not admitted but the person really feels like they need to be admitted what recourse does that person have
1: well i mean that would happen on the facility side they would they would take that up with the facility um in my experience it's very rare for a facility to deny admission to someone who feels they need to be admitted yes i agree they may not get paid for it the insurance company or whoever may deny, but you know, hospitals have ways to cover admissions and stays that were not covered by an insurance company. They don't tell people about it, but they have ways of dealing with it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, they have charity
1: mm-hmm.
0: available, which they don't don't tell you about. Nope. Um, okay. Well, what other... Common misconceptions about insurance do you think exist on both the client and the provider side?
1: I think for customers, clients, patients, sorry, uh, I think that there is this misconception that because they have insurance, they're always covered. I think lots of people think that, not just someone trying to admit to a facility. I think, as we all do, I pay for this insurance, I've got it for my family, I should be covered regardless this is what i want i feel like i need this surgery i feel like i need to go to this place so i'm going to be covered because i have insurance and that's not actually how it works um and insurance even if they do approve it doesn't mean it's 100 covered you still have deductibles you still have co-insurance right um i think on the facility side there is this misconception that that relationship is combative and it's not meant to be. There are certain times that hard conversations happen between a facility or a an, an attending physician or a clinician and a utilization manager to really kind of figure out what the discharge plan is, what the treatment goals are, why this person has been in treatment for this amount of time, but very little progress has been made and in fact, maybe decompensating and what that looks like. Where's the facility's onus on that? What, what changes could be made to improve this outcome? So yeah, sometimes hard conversations happen. But really, it's a collaborative effort. We want our customers to be healthy and happy and thriving and living mm-hmm. um, and functioning in their life. And to function even after this crisis has happened. And that relationship doesn't have to be combative. We're not actually evil soul-sucking insurance (laughs) people, though that's the um, reputation we get, I think, sometimes.
0: I think so too, unfortunately. But yeah, I mean, you're limited by what your company says you can mm-hmm. and can't do, you know?
1: And I, I'm still a clinician. I don't, you know, there is oftentimes I hear, well, you don't, I mean, you don't really know. But I do know. I have worked with people way less functioning mm-hmm. than this person. The history would suggest that they can function again outside of this level of care. We have to trust. And we have to set them up to continue to function, but let's not underestimate them either.
0: Right. And, you know, kind of one of the the other things I wanted to talk about is um, privacy with insurance Mm -hmm. companies. Now, um, you know, as a utilization reviewer, as a a private clinician, um, I always provided the minimum necessary information. Mm -hmm meaning giving you the least information possible while still saying like, here's the rationale for what is needed. And there, there have been plenty of times where I have withheld you know, some private information. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what do you think clients need to know about privacy and insurance?
1: Well, the first thing that I think everybody needs to know is HIPAA allows for third-party payers to receive information. Insurance companies are third-party payers. You don't need to give the minimum necessary. If they're asking for it, and it's they need if they're telling you they need it to justify continued payment, give it to them. We have the same HIPAA guidelines. We're on protected servers. I mean, everything I work off of is secure. It's not going anywhere. What I do find that lots of people don't understand is that hospitals, many hospitals, while maybe they operate under a different name or owned by the same company, and they have their own intranet, and you know they can access each other's information. So just because someone admitted to Hospital A, and then two years later they've admitted to Hospital C, why does Hospital C have all their information? That's got nothing to do with the insurance company.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That only has to do with the hospital system sharing information which you should want them to have so that they know. You don't have to re-explain all of your history to Mm -hmm. them. They've got it in front of them. Um, Even within the insurance company, if a medical UM contacts me and says, I see they've got this psychiatric history, I will only give them the minimum necessary for that medical authorization. Because we're not sharing, we're not sharing information. I'm keeping it. Mm -hmm. But hospitals have their own systems that they work off of and will have access to that information. But again, it's to save you time and trouble and, you know, re-experiencing traumatic events or, you know.
0: What, you know, what you said is true under the notice of privacy practices, um, you know, information can be passed along for issues related to treatment, payment, and healthcare operations, mm-hmm. which payment is, you know, an example of payment would be that my office, for example, would disclose somebody's PHI to their health insurer to obtain reimbursement right. for their health care, right. or to determine eligibility or coverage. Right. Um, and, you know, I don't need to get a release of information in order to right. do that.
1: And you know what? If the clinician's worried about it, you still can get a release of information. It doesn't hurt. But you're not required. Those releases of information are for outpatient providers, family members, case managers with some other system. Don't waste them on your insurance company.
0: (laughs) And then, you know, I said minimum necessary because I I consider minimum necessary to be an ethical Mm -hmm. issue, not necessarily Mm -hmm. a, like, a... Uh, i don't know like a like an issue of operation i guess um so you know regardless you know because sometimes an insurance company might have information about somebody who say they want to join the military Mm -hmm. um, or get some high level security clearance um who's to say that you know the military can't obtain records from the health insurance to determine whether they will provide that level of access to an individual.
1: Yeah, your employer is not accessing your insurance information. Well,
0: I'm talking about the government. It's different.
1: Well, <laughs> governments are employers. Um, I, I guess it could happen in some like conspiracy, conspiracy,
0: but it's I'm not. just saying. Yeah. <laughs> i'm just saying it has the potential to happen
1: the government has their own way of determining if you're (laughs) safe for service but really if we're really breaking it down and we're talking about someone's safety isn't it all sort of necessary
0: well i mean what if somebody had say a history of significant suicidal ideations in the past but like Mm -hmm. they've been doing well for like 10 15 years you know um You know, would that information still be held against them in some way, shape, or form? I don't know.
1: I don't know either.
0: Um, And, you know, the other thing that I'm just not sure of is, like, what happens with all the data that's kept by insurance companies? You know, like, I I wonder, like...
1: Yeah, I mean, it's on a server somewhere. How
0: long is it stored on the server? Like, you know, how long is it kept? Like, I just... I'm curious about all those sorts of things. Yeah,
1: I don't have the answer for that. (laughs) I can tell you we don't work in paper. There's no paper trail.
0: (laughs) It's just something I've always been curious about, especially when it comes to, like, marketplace plans, because that, Mm. you know, is government.
1: Yeah, but it's, I mean... All I can say is that they're not... Just accessing your information. As I said before, the military has lots of other ways to find out your history.
0: True, true.
1: They do their own assessments Mm
0: -hmm.
1: with highly trained psychological uh, personnel.
0: So you've worked in a variety of settings. Mm What kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients, such as those who are transgender, undocumented, or BIPOC, to name a few examples?
1: Well, I think in all the work that I've done, I have come across people that would fall into those groups. I mean, anybody who has pretty chronic mental health issues or their own vulnerable population um, particularly working with adolescents who are involved in, sorry, involved in juvenile probation system and their families. Many of them are vulnerable populations. They're minorities or people of color. Um, even now at an insurance company, I do so many reviews for psychiatric care on adolescents who are transgender. Um, and and I have to be really careful because I I sort of, slip into an advocacy role sometimes even out of my um role in correcting facility staff we're doing this review i'm going to refer for phi purposes we have to do the legal name that the that the policy is on but immediately after that how are we referring to this person what name have they chosen what pronouns are we using and and i will correct them uh anyway uh it, I'm sure it becomes really annoying to lots of people. But um, when I worked with adults who were fresh out of prison and had acute psychiatric symptoms and co-occurring substance use, that's their own vulnerable population. 80% of those clients had substance abuse problems. Most of them were part of a minority population. Being fresh out of prison is its own vulnerable population. These people have not functioned within a society for many many years i mean i worked with people who went to prison before cell phones were even a thing
0: yeah that's
1: and wow. they're expected to just know how to live mm-hmm. only were sober because they were in prison
0: and be able to get a job and obtain mm-hmm. housing when you can't obtain housing if you have a felony on your record for most places some right. places you can but um not not many
1: right
0: yeah we do not set that population up for success no at all.
1: no no, and especially being in prison for so long, they've set them up to come back because they, they know they're gonna have a bed, be fed.
0: Because of the industrial prison complex. Yes. And yes. privatized prisons. Yes. But that's a whole different that's podcast. A whole
1: other <laughs> episode. Don't get me started.
0: <laughs> so, um, was there was there anything that I didn't ask or we didn't get to talk about about utilization management insurance and advocacy that you would like to mention do you think we got a pretty good basis there
1: i mean i think we we touched on a lot of things i would say if you are a clinician and you are working with a live utilization manager someone on the insurance side that you were talking to about continued stay use them they are clinicians themselves they have varied experience working with lots of different populations use them we have eating disorder teams we have substance abuse teams we have autism teams specific to dealing with services for very specific populations. We have expertise, we have insight, use us. As much as, you know, as much as you're giving us information and we're getting it, let us plan with you. We're not trying to guide treatment, we're not trying to tell you how to treat anybody, but we have information that could be useful.
0: Mm-hmm. So, in other words, you're another resource.
1: Yes, absolutely. We're not the enemy. Sometimes conversations may be hard, but that is the nature of life. Mm-hmm. You have to have hard conversations with people all the time.
0: Those are the best conversations in my book.
1: It is, and it's. but we are a business. The place you're working for is a business as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, well, uh, switching gears a little bit to you as a... Therapist, (laughs) how do you define holding space for someone?
1: You know, I think holding space is just being present, giving someone the opportunity to talk or not talk and explore whatever is going on inside them whether they hash it out or not, just being present and being available and allowing them that space to, you know, really just feel what they're feeling and think what they're thinking and share it or not.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. What is the best advice you've ever received from a supervisor?
1: Don't work harder than your client, (laughs) which is really tough to do. It
0: is. It is hard sometimes. Um... Especially when you're looking at more vulnerable populations,
1: mm-hmm. and you know, there's that common saying. I'm gonna say it wrong, but when you hear a hoof, like uh, hoof sounds, don't always think zebras. Think you know, think horses, or what's the? I haven't heard that, but I, I like that. What's the saying? It, which basically is, don't always jump to some crazy, outrageous. It could, it could be exactly what you think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in terms of mental health you have to sometimes explore those, look outside the box. And that includes not, but sometimes it is exactly what it is. So many times I see diagnoses like MDD, really, or is it bereavement? Mm -hmm. Is it adjustment disorder? Mm -hmm. We really have to pay attention to those DSM criteria and, and the length of time someone is experiencing symptoms because things like MDD, bipolar, those things stay the, the moment someone is assigned that diagnosis in some kind of facility setting, it stays with them, and it may not be the most appropriate identifier.
0: Well, I mean, not only it stays with them, but I think that a lot of people tend to, when people get a diagnosis, sometimes people will over identify mm-hmm. with a diagnosis Absolutely. and when you know as clinicians we need to think about the diagnoses that we're giving people because that does happen you know and if you you know like I'm trying to think of an example
1: well i noticed lots of times some people who have very well have certain access to diagnoses that's
0: exactly where i was going to go
1: will see those other diagnoses as a crutch and use them in a way that justifies continued problematic behavior. Well, I mean, also... Not always, but what, sometimes. Well, what, what bugs
0: me, though, is very when... Very
1: difficult to
0: overcome. Is when clinicians see somebody once and diagnose somebody with a personality disorder of, of any That's sort. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that that takes you know, a, a personality disorder, what makes a personality disorder is a pattern, right. right? So like we have to allow enough time for us to see a pattern before we diagnose mm-hmm. that, in my opinion, because well, that's a that's that's a big thing to diagnose somebody
1: with. And conversely, when you have someone who's been participating in some kind of treatment program, whether it's inpatient or outpatient, for an extended period of time, and that clinician is afraid to Discharge. diagnose them right. with access yeah. to when with some sort of access to diagnosis when it's a it's obvious because your treatment that diagnosis is going to help guide your treatment and are you treating them effectively if you're refusing to assign right. a diagnosis after you've spent that time with them and assess them and know that this this might be what it is are you getting them are you doing them the most good
0: and and i I think that's something else to note too is like if you're gonna diagnose somebody with something then your documentation and your interventions that you're using better be congruent with Mm -hmm. that diagnosis Mm -hmm. um you know because like like we talked about earlier we're creating this whole like rationale and Mm -hmm. this whole
1: like and treatment plans are supposed to be individualized Yes yes.
0: <laughs> um, okay. So what have you personally learned about yourself and/ or the world through your work?
1: Um, well, through my various jobs, uh, I but I guess mostly this one um, you get really good at compartmentalizing. I get pretty good at compartmentalizing. I have worried in this position that I've maybe lost my edge a little bit as a clinician, so I'll dabble here and there in the private uh, practice section, sector, just to make sure that I'm keeping my skills honed, Um, but especially in this job, there is so much opportunity to be a different, to see clinical work in a different way, Mm -hmm. and I certainly was limiting myself in other Positions because I think having the clinical side, having the, the practical side is necessary, but there is that other side that you really have to understand what diagnoses look like and really have to understand and be familiar with medical trials and medications and things like that. And so this job certainly has provided me that opportunity to be more well-rounded. mm mm-hmm. So that when I am seeing private clients, I have a wealth of knowledge that someone else may not have.
0: Yeah, and I know a big reason why you wanted to do this podcast is to let other LPCs and LPC associates know, and you know, across licensures as well, that this type of work is an option to community-based work or agency-based work.
1: Yeah, I had no idea a job like this even existed when I was in grad school. In grad school, we talked about community mental health, private practice, or you could get your PhD and teach other people how to be a counselor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure most of my professors would think I sold out, and that's okay. <laughs> I'm I'm okay with it. I you know I provide for myself and my family. I we I get to leave work at work and enjoy my time at home. Um, And community mental health, and even private practice, it's easy to get burned out. And this is a really nice option for people who are reaching that point where they're maybe getting burned out, and it's going to ruin counseling. They're no, they're they're reaching the point where they may not be effective for their clients anymore. You can always stop and go back.
0: You can mm-hmm. always
1: go back to community mental health. You can always go back to private practice. I know lots of people who do this job and have a private practice concurrently. Yeah. It's just an option that no one knows about. Yeah. Unless you know someone in it. Right. So now you all know me in it.
0: <laughs> so what do you do to take care of yourself?
1: I sleep. I do nothing. <laughs> Those hobbies. Um,
0: Intentionally doing nothing. I like yeah, that
1: I idea. actively... People say, what are you doing? I'm doing nothing. Well, let's go. No, I'm doing nothing. I am using this time to sit on my couch and read a book or watch TV, which sounds like you're doing something, but I'm letting my brain rest. Yeah.
0: How would you define happiness?
1: As a mood. (laughs) Okay. I, you know, that, that was a was,
0: quick answer. Yeah, that was,
1: that's probably something else really helpful. A supervisor somewhere, I don't even know that it was a, a, a counseling supervisor, but that happiness is not a destination. We experience moods and those moods fluctuate. And if you're always looking for happiness, you're going to be really disappointed with yourself for not achieving certain things. And happiness is not a meter for success some meter for wealth or anything it's a mood i'm experiencing sometimes more often than not maybe less often than not um but it's just the way you feel
0: yeah fleeting
1: yeah it's not required (laughs) to be successful
0: yeah and i think a lot of people think like oh i have to be happy all the time or else i you know
1: even all those medications they talk about don't make you happy all the time
0: no (laughs) they only take the edge off i I
1: like to say they get you to baseline right that's kind of how i explain it to a lot of people that if without meds you're functioning or you're decompensating you're at a lower level than you know where you think you should be the medications are going to get you to zero and therapy will get you hopefully above zero but medications put you in a position for that therapy and that program work or whatever treatment work you're doing to really have a positive impact.
0: Okay, cool. What is the most embarrassing moment you have had as a utilization manager?
1: I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, um, I, don't, I don't know that I've had any embarrassing moments as a UM. I mean, I'm, I talk on the phone all day. I'm not really interacting with people. So I don't um I mean, I have lots of embarrassing moments in other positions that I can share, I guess. But um, let me, so first I will start off by saying that no one was injured. I'm sure (laughs) when you hear this story, you're going to gasp and be like, oh my gosh, we should report her. Please don't. It was several years ago and no one was injured. I know for a fact. Um, But when I worked at CPS and I was a caseworker, I had to sadly remove a kiddo from the hospital. This is a newborn baby. I took this newborn baby to her new foster parents, and I get in the house. It's late at night. This had been like a 24-hour day. It was crazy. Um, I get that new baby to this foster home, and the foster parents didn't tell me, watch your step. There's a step right there. I fell with this three-day-old baby oh
0: my goodness. in my
1: arms. See, gasp. Um, let me tell you, that baby was protected like a football. <laughs> baby didn't even shake she didn't cry i like landed on some toy out tool desk that and i had a sore neck for three days but um because i hit it with the side of my head and it was oh yeah but that baby didn't even shake i i didn't know i had those protective capacities in me (laughs) until then and the foster family was you know oh my gosh are you okay i'm just like take the baby i'll get up on my own i mean i think she was asleep she stayed asleep so before you get all concerned for this child who is now 13 she's fine and functioning and healthy but uh, it was a bit embarrassing after the fear wore off it was just embarrassing and then anger why didn't you tell me to watch my step i'm sure i'm yeah. not the only person that's tripped rude rude exactly <laughs> did you want this to happen <laughs> anyway that was pretty embarrassing
0: Yeah, I could see that. That sucks. It's hard. But it was...
1: It also... Total
0: shock absorption.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that baby was fine. She was nestled like a little baby.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, another vulnerable question. Oh. Are you in therapy or have you ever been in therapy yourself?
1: I have been. I'm Not currently. I probably should be. um, But I have been. um, And I have been as a therapist. And it's much harder, therapy is harder as a clinician because I'm looking for very specific therapy things. Not like I'm looking for this type of clinician. I mean, I'm observing them to see what types of things they're using on me that I know about. (laughs) And it takes me completely out of um, the session. I, I, it is harder for me to allow myself to be vulnerable in therapy as a therapist. Wow. Uh, I, maybe I'm not the only one, I'm sure I'm not. Um,
0: kind of like doctors are the worst patients.
1: Yes, I, I tend to, when I call to find a therapist, the first thing I relate to them is, I am a counselor. Um, <laughs> caution. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. Um. Well, is there anything else that you think would be good for potential clients, therapists, you know, to know about insurance or you as a utilization manager?
1: No, not me. Not me as a UM specifically because I'm just some unknown person. But um, ask what your EAP benefits are most employers provide them familiarize yourself with them there's so many services available that you don't even know you have and that eap is a amazing resource i mean even in finding child care oh really yeah i mean it's 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 crazy just just ask them if you have eap get the phone number your employer will provide it to you hr typically is who has that information on hand Call them and find out what's available to you.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the show, Lindsay. love talking about this stuff.
1: Thanks for having me. The next question.
0: Thank you for listening to NextQuest Podcast. I learned something new today, and I hope you did too. Next week's episode will feature Greer Colbertson, licensed clinical social worker, who will be discussing her practice and area of specialty, mindfulness. NextQuest Podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmitt Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmitt Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmitt.com, that is j-a-n-d-i-m-m-i-t-t.com, or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. Next Quest Podcasts relies solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon.com/slash Next Quest Podcast. Or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com/slash About Next Quest Podcast. You can also support the podcast by liking our Facebook page. Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.